Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. Joining me is my usual co-host, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, retired Navy Captain and Intel Officer, Bill Hamlet. Bill. Hey, Ward. It's, it's great. It is earlier great. than we're normally it here. It is earlier. It is uh, Tuesday rather than Wednesday. It's earlier th- in the day. Uh, and we have a, a guest today who is up super early because he's in Hawaii, so it's like 2.30 in the morning there. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, we have not had a podcast for a couple weeks because we've had some uh, schedules and then uh, cancellations and things with your schedule, my schedule, and guest schedules. Um, but we are happy to be back and on air, and we, um, uh, we, we should have a great show today. Uh, wanted to highlight a couple things since we were last, uh, since our last episode of the podcast, the May issue of Proceedings is out. Uh, it is the annual review uh, in the May issue. Hold it up for, um, the, for the people on Facebook Live. We've got a, an a awesome, very poignant cover. Awesome cover, poignant cover. Uh, so the uh, the May issue is sort of the review. We do the annual review, the Naval review, Marine Corps review, Coast Guard review. Um, Merchant Marine Review, uh, sort of take a, a look at the year that has gone past. We also uh, published the three winners of the 2017 General Prize Essay Contest. That is the oldest and most prestigious essay contest that the Naval Some Institute... Some very distinguished winners through the years. Since uh, 1889. Uh, the Admiral first, King. Admiral Ernest, Ernest J. Ernest King, J. Admiral Stavridis, Admiral Winnefeld. Uh, the first winner was Commander Alfred Thayer Mahan in 1889. Perhaps you've heard of him. So a few people <laughs> may have heard of... of uh, of uh, Alfred. Um, yeah, so it was, uh, and we announced the winners at the annual meeting at CSIS last Wednesday night. Uh, so the, the three winners, the uh, first prize winner, uh, Captain Dale Relog, uh, the Pack Fleet N2, <clears throat> uh, current N2 at, uh, at Pack Fleet. Uh, second place winner, uh, Lieutenant J.G. Daniel Stephanus, who's been on the, sh- on the podcast with us, who's won or placed in a number of essay contests. He's a Naval Institute phenom. Wunderkind. Wunderkind. We love yeah. Dan. He's a great dude. And, it's great to um, see him and his wife. And third place was uh, Lieutenant um, uh, Cordial, Brendan Cordial, who has also been on the podcast and written a number of things for proceedings. And uh, So are you seeing the pattern here, everybody? Yeah. Right. Often. Uh, be on the podcast. Be on the podcast. Win awards. Win awards. It's, it, it, <laughs> victory begins at the Naval Institute. It, it's and it goes through the podcast on your as, way to the Naval Institute. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's get to the the guest today. Uh, so um, joining us from Hawaii, from Mar- For- Marine Forces Pacific, is Major uh, Nicholas Nappy. Uh, Nick is also. Uh, written for proceedings a number of times. This is uh, his second or third article that we published in just the, the last year or so. Uh, Nick is a Marine Intelligence Officer, as I said, stationed at Camp Smith in Hawaii. It's 2.30 in the morning out there, so he gets uh, extra points for joining us this morning. And he's written an article, uh, uh, starts on page 44, 45 of the May issue of proceedings called, But Will They Fight China? Uh, and um, the deck on the article is the assumption that U.S. allies in the Pacific would join the United States in a kinetic conflict with China must be revised. So, Nick, thanks for joining us. Aloha. Uh, aloha, gentlemen. Thank you for having me on. So, Bill just mentioned that you're up, and it's uh, 2.33 local a.m. Uh, explain to the audience why you're awake at this hour. It's uh, pure motivation, sir. That's, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, no, I don't write uh, your fit rep. 
I'm doing a uh, the the field grade officers here do three month rotations in the uh, the combat operations center here at Mar Fort Pack. So I'm just I'm paying my dues. You're on the watch. Yes, sir. Yeah, and the um, the erupt the erupting volcano is uh, several hundred miles away from you, so not a problem uh, on Oahu. Um, but what, what's uh, what's happening out there with uh, volcanic activity? Um, we're nothing really is affected here in in Oahu, gentlemen. It's it's kind of funny though because I'm getting I'm getting family members who haven't talked to me in years calling me or texting me and. Uh, I have some buddies that, that send kind of goofy memes that show the map. Okay, here's the big island. Here's Oahu. Absolutely no effect here. Um, the only effect it has on me is I'm, my wife and my four kids are going to the big island at the end of the month for vacation. So, um, so you're, not, you're, not feeling, vacation. you're not feeling any of the earthquakes that they're having? I mean, they're having a massive amount of earthquakes over there, I guess. No, no, sir. The distance is so great. It uh, might as well be in a different state. Oahu from the Big Island right now. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, when I was stationed in Hawaii, oftentimes we would, on Oahu, um, because of volcanic activity on the Big Island, we would get what they call VOG, which was volcanic off-gassing or something like that. And it was sort of this foggy air quality would, would drop. It would get a little bit, you know, sort of hazy. Are you guys getting any of that on Oahu? We are. We are. And that's uh, that's a thing. Some people say it's not a thing. It's, it's definitely affects my wife. Um, but it's funny because you're asking about the the earthquake, how that's affecting us. Uh, I mean, I was here at 8 a.m. I woke up. It was a day off, and I got the text message that missiles were inbound. And, uh, you know, my wife and my kids, we, we kind of we live on Hickam, Pearl Harbor, Hickam. It's probably the, the number one spot. And looked outside. It's all flat. There's no micro terrain even. So we just shrugged our shoulders and sat there in the ladder well uh, talking. So it's. After that, uh, you know these volcanic eruptions and everything don't really, don't really even move the move the meter for us. So, <laughs> so no personal panic out there uh, as a result of uh, or, of volcanic activity. All right, well let's no. move let's move to the article. Uh, so again, the, it's titled "But Will They Fight China?" So you are a um, a guy uh, at Marfor Pack. Your job is. Um, you're a South Asia country director, so you look at things like uh, what's happening in, in South Asia, the relationships uh, military to military between the U.S. and um, countries like Thailand and uh, I'm guessing India and Bangladesh, etc. cetera. Uh, and as you look at the region and, and have done some analysis here, you think you, you start off the article by saying there's a catch-22. Explain that. Yes, sir. Well, f first of all, I kind of want to give my bona fides. I, I'm a proud graduate of uh, Naval Postgraduate School, the uh, National Security Affairs Program. So I'm doing my foreign area officer tour right now. And oh, yeah. uh, South Asia, my area of expertise, but, um, you know, we kind of cover down on all the desks here. And I've done uh, Oceania and uh, covered parts of um, Northeast Asia as well. So writing this article, um, I, I guess the, the impetus for me was, I mean, when this current administration came in, I remember a lot of the news saying, oh, we need to reassure our allies. We need to reassure our allies. And it just didn't, that didn't sit well with me because it didn't make sense to me. Uh, to me, it's like, why, why do, I looked at the risk. You know, that's my in, intel officer uh, part of my brain. I looked at the risk and it's like, the risk isn't 
to the United States, not an existential risk. We're pretty much safe, you know, the continental United States. Why would we have to reassure our allies? Wouldn't If the allies really felt China was a threat and they were worried about us, they should reassure us. But instead, I was seeing things like um, President Duterte of the Philippines making pretty outlandish comments about uh, the former president, uh, President Obama, and us kind of doubling down on it and supporting them even more. And and once again, my intel brain looking at, well, how would China see this? Would China see this as a um, as deterrence or that we were embarrassing ourselves by by supporting this kind of rhetoric? And and I almost named it um, the green hat in the, in the Pacific because I don't know if you're familiar with China too much, but uh, in China you never wear a green hat because it's a symbol that your wife's cheating on you. And, uh, and I thought that, you know, when, when we have allies that are making uh, open remarks like this and courting China and Russia, it's like we're wearing a green hat in the Pacific, and there's absolutely no deterrence in that. So there's that not a lot of Notre Dame fans in China, is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, if they are, they're getting laughed at behind their backs here, so... I had never heard that. I, I hadn't heard that either. I like the analogy, though, that, uh, you know, here, I mean, the Philippines is a treaty ally with, with the United States, and uh, the, the open support and comments of uh, President Duterte against, uh, you know, the former U.S. president and towards uh, and pro-China were, were a, a pretty radical turn, particularly when you when you look at the way that the Chinese have acted towards uh, Philippine claims and the, the recognized Philippine exclusive economic zone in the South China Sea and Scarborough Shoal, I thought that was a, a, a pretty radical turn for Duterte to, uh, you know, essentially a- almost acquiesce on those uh, territorial expansions by the Chinese uh, in the, the small islands in the South China Sea. What, how do you take on that? Well, I think he's uh, a pragmatist, sir. I think, I mean, it's, I think a lot of us as Americans, we tend to mirror image and, and judge, but when I'm, I'm a fan of international relations, I'm only an expert from what I got at, uh, at Naval Postgraduate School, but I, I don't try to look at him through a moral compass. I try to look at him through a pragmatic lens, and I think he's pretty smart in a lot of ways with what he's doing. And that's the argument I make in this article is um, let's not look at this through a normative lens. Let's look at it as almost a, a game. What are these countries' uh, responsibilities to their people and to their own security? And, uh, and let's, let's realistically look at it. If this went to blows uh, with, you know, the Thucydides trap, if it went to blows with the U.S. and China, um, where, what would be the best move for the countries? And I think a lot of the, our five treaty allies in the Pacific, uh, we're talking uh, Japan, uh, South Korea, um, Australia, the Philippines, and Thailand, they have different interests. And I think only really the safest one that you could bet would back us is Japan. All the other ones are either a toss-up or open game for um, bandwagoning to China. So let, let, let's the, let's do a further breakdown country by country, because uh, yes, you set it up very nicely. So let's start with Australia. Um, and if you could, do a little Tom Clancy, um, August Cole um, sort of scenario setting. You know, what 
let's talk about the cause and effect. You know, is it a hot war? Are we sort of playing chess and we're at a, a check or checkmate sort of a scenario? Um, you know, what, what? how does this come to pass? And then let's talk first about how Australia responds. Oh, um, well, I'm not creative enough to, to make a story okay. about the flood. Well, then, then skip that. that part and just let's talk about <laughs> Australia. As well, you let's, outlined let's say, let's say something, let's say a, um, a freedom of navigation like, ops goes goes awry and that starts it all off. See, you're then, creative. I mean, that's a fantastic scenario. There okay, you go. Well, don't don't show yourself short. that's the scenario short. we'll go with. Uh, <laughs> Australia, I mean, they're historically fantastic allies. They fought with us in, in pretty much every war we fought in, in this last century. Um but they are heavily invested with China. China's their biggest trading partner. Uh, a few of the things, I wasn't smart on, on all these countries. I had to do a lot of research for this paper. And, and one of the things that interests me about China is, you know, we have the uh, Marine Rotational Force Darwin there in the last couple of years. And in 2015, they, they leased the port of Darwin to China for 99 years. So it's um, it's kind of a... Darwin's got a Janus aspect to it. It's a little, I'm trying to think of a more polite term for two-faced, but it's 2.30 in the morning here, so I can't. It's duplicitous, slightly. But it's not, once again, I don't look at it as a, through a moral compass. I look at it through a pragmatic one. It's a smart thing to do. They're sort of hedging their bets. So what's and the proximity our, of that port to where the Marines are located? It's there. They're, they're, oh, they're in co-located. Or, yeah, pretty oh, much, my. yeah. Because I, I have a classmate whose son is a Mar 4 guy now, but when he did his first infantry tour, he was in Darwin, and he he hated it. <laughs> yeah. uh, I haven't been myself. I heard there's a lot of uh, um, a, lo- a lot of uh, animals that, that want to kill you there. Yeah, but, that's um, what he said, yes. <laughs> uh, another thing that interests me about China, too, was their white paper. I think their 2016 white paper. It's their version of their national security strategy, if I can. It's analogous to that. Um, they mentioned if you do the control F on it and did United States, you see over 100 entries. And they say that their core, um, their core defense goals are, you know, freedom of navigation and freedom of commerce and that they'll leverage their relationship and an alliance with the United States. But when they talk about China in that, in that 2000, I think it was 2016 white paper, they never even show China as a, an adversary or a threat. It's portrayed, this is my personal opinion, it's portrayed as, yeah, China and the United States kind of have this thing going on, and, uh, you know, we really hope they, they're responsible. Uh, we're going to stay to the side, but, but all our core goals for defense, uh, we rely on our, we're going to leverage our alliance with the U.S. So, I mean, I think in international relations terms, that can be called uh, – uh, I, I can't think of the name. Um, the not sort of real politique. Well, yes, I, I'm, I'm. I'm thinking a simple turn, and it's uh, term. It, it is two thirty, so I'm a little smoked in the head. But uh, <laughs> the uh, no, I, being I mean, pragmatic. Was, yeah. 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 Um, Nick, you you get in. They're in, trying to have have their cake and eat it too. I guess that's uh, colloquial and is colloquialism I'll, I'll use instead of an actual real term so yeah nick you you bring up a question uh, early in the paper where you say do u.s treaty allies and allies in the pacific represent a realist 
realist power balancing block of states, or can they be more accurately described as a liberal institutionalist collective security apparatus? And then you go on to describe the difference between NATO versus the Soviet Union and sort of how the U.S. and the NATO bloc were a much more solid bloc than what you see in the Pacific, where the U.S. and its and its allies uh, and friends in the region versus China, it's a different scenario. It's much much more subtle than the you know sort of power on power um, situation that existed in in Europe in the Cold War. Hundred percent, sir. It's and the reason is threat perception. Um, I mean, let's let's talk semantics. Is it alliance or is it a collective? I don't think they can be described. Once the once the threat that was the impetus for the original five alliances went away, i.e., the Soviet Union, Soviet expansionism, uh, communist expansionism. Once that went away, in the absence of a threat, there's really no alliance. I mean, according to Stephen Walt, uh, who's a IR theorist, it's the alliance or the threat kind of forms the alliance. Um, so when that threat went away, it was a unipolar world. The U.S. was the the sole superpower. So they say alliances. They, alliance is a term on paper, and there's still the treaties, but effectively it's bandwagoning at that point because there's no threat. Now China's rise, uh, the five treaty allies – that's not what they signed up for. They didn't sign up for alliances against China, and a lot of them don't view China as a threat. They view it as an opportunity. And we we're not. Uh, these are bilateral alliances. These are bilateral U.S. to Australia, U.S. to the Republic of Korea, U.S. to Thailand, U.S. to Philippines. Um, so they're not. It's not a web of alliances. It's it's five separate alliances we have with partner countries. So we described Australia as duplicitous um, to get back to the country-by-country country piece. Um, how about Japan? You, you mentioned that they're the only true ally uh, we had. How does, that, how does that play out specifically? So l- let me just go back one second. So duplicitous is such a, such a really harsh-sounding word, and I, I love Australians. I work with Australians. I, I wish I hadn't used that word. Uh, let's just say they, they have some converging interests. Yeah, uh, agnostic, I, I, I guess. Wait, is it, okay, not duplicitous, right? That's That's got <laughs> a, a little bit word. of a, yeah. Uh, yeah um, your, your point about, you know, U.S. Marines are in Darwin, but they also, on the commercial side, uh, signed a very long lease with the Chinese, with Chinese uh, commercial interests for the port of Darwin. And that's, yes, to, yes, that's yes. to export raw materials. So that's, you know, that's showing... The, the two sides that the that the Australians have to, you know, they they have to walk a thin line, right? It's it's on the on the military, political alliance with the United States, but commercially they are much more aligned, and, and they do a lot more business with China. And yeah. all of these countries face that they they have to they have to walk that line, right? right. So not yes. duplicitous, just in the course of doing what's best for Australia. Yes, they have to yeah. have a healthy relationship with China, with yeah. China and, as well as the United States, and they have to balance That's it in their judgment. Right. Yes. yes yeah. Okay. Um, yes. So we, we strike duplicitous from the record. We do. <laughs> yes. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm, I'm blaming it on the. Uh, it was a two. Th- it's what I did. Blame me. Yeah. Throw me under the bus with your Aussie right. counterpart. And it's a two thirty in the morning <laughs> word. It yeah. was. It was a two thirty in the morning word. Right. Yeah. Um, so Japan, Serge, I think Japan was, is probably our most reliable ally in a, a scenario like this because they would have the most to lose. Um, you have the historical animosity 
being is a huge factor, and uh, the proximity, and also the um, in 2010 the the tensions near the Senkakus uh, that came to head when that uh, Chinese fishing boat rammed the Japanese Coast Guard ship. So you have some tangible uh, instances of where the threat perception from China is real. And Japan is, I think, the most unapologetic in their, uh, in their reaction. I mean, they, they changed their constitution. They're building an amphibious force. Uh, and so if it went down, whatever the scenario is, uh, I think they're probably the only ones you could 100% count on. And they have a strong territorial disagreement with the Chinese, uh, not not only over the Senkakus, uh, but also in the East China Sea, uh, the the territorial shelf, uh, the in the space there's oil and natural gas, uh, in the you know on the seafloor the the South China Sea that both China and and um, Japan claim, uh, they have overlapping claims. There's friction about those claims and how to how to resolve the disputes. So that that plays into it as well. Yes, sir. Yeah. I also read in the New York Times this, uh, on Sunday that uh, Japan's not loving um, how things are progressing with respect to the North Korea uh, summit and uh, and whatever you would call how you how you characterize uh, the the detente or whatever you would say uh, the Trump administration is doing vis-a-vis China. Um, are you seeing some of that from where you sit, Nick? I'm uh, I'm not really seeing that, sir. I mean, I, I'm not saying it's not happening, but uh, things, uh, my, my, just, my gut feeling is uh, I like the, the way things are progressing now. Yeah, but are it, you, you're not Japanese. I know. <laughs> I know, but... Uh, but I am American, and as American, uh, and also uh, there is a I, there's that personal part too. I mean, I, I for a second there, for a second, a couple months ago, I thought me and my family were going to blow up because you got the. Uh, I live on Hickam. You had the the nuke sirens going off on Hickam, and uh, and it was you know it was because the North Korea threat. So that's a real thing to me, and now that it's it's progressing. Uh, I personally like it, and I think that I think we're getting closer to. I, I like the new national security strategy as well. It's much more as a as a military planner. It's it's easier to plan off of. It's less it's less flowery than other security strategies, and it's more to the point. And this is actual. This is what we want. So it's it's easier, I think, for for military planners to um, put their actual fingers on on what to do. So uh, yeah, I kind of went off on a tangent. No, there, no, that's, but that's that's an interesting uh, take. Um, okay, so uh, how about let's uh, talk about South Korea. How 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 would they play in in the uh, if if things got a little hotter? So that what I found very interesting about South Korea because I'm not an expert on South Korea. I didn't study it in school. I just had to to kind of do my studying for this article. Was that no one really talks about the fact uh, the bilateral alliance between China and North Korea, and that in the case of a war, uh, North Korea, when called on, is going to support China. And I make an argument in the article, and this was before things started looking up when I wrote this article. I submitted it in December. But, uh, you know, it's arguable whether or not China would honor that treaty if we 
if we attacked North Korea because of their missiles. But North Korea is completely dependent on China economically. And so when China, if they, if they called on them, I think it's a pretty good assumption that North Korea would just do it because they would have to. I mean, they're, they're essentially an island uh, with only touching China as far as their, their main lifeline. And if that happens, you'd kick off a whole Korea scenario. And it would, it would sign – Korea would not only be a, a – they would not be a help, it would be a hindrance. And, and I described in the article, similar to Israel in the first Gulf War, how Saddam was trying to bait them by shooting scuds to, to join the war, and they kind of had that strategic patience and sat back, because if they had joined, it would have blown the coalition with the Arab nations. So I think Korea, even though they're, they're strong allies, in a, in a China scenario, it's probably it would confuse things even more if the if the peninsula blew up with a north and south uh, conflict. Uh, how about Thailand? Thailand, another interesting thing. Uh, it's not a it's not a military ally. My understanding of the alliance is it's an economic alliance. So when I read that, I had to double read it because you always hear about our five allies in the Pacific, and you just assume they're they're military allies, you know, attack on one is an attack on uh, me. Um, but the Thailand alliance isn't a military alliance. And and, and I think we got to be careful with my judgment calls here of, of past policies. But, uh, you know, when we turn off support to them for a coup, but don't call Egypt's coup a coup and continue to work with them, once again, from their eyes, I would be incredibly insulted, and I would look for a partner that's willing to play with me, and they, they found that in China. And I think we maybe played the wrong hand with how we treated their coups, and we're paying, we're paying the price for it now. So they're much closer to China than they've probably ever been, and I argue that they're a very good candidate for um, defection in a conflict to either just sit out or go to China's side. Probably just sit out. That's the safest bet for in any of these scenarios, just to kind of sit back and see who comes out on top. Nick, um, when I was stationed in Hawaii, uh, I left there in 2012, just as the uh, dust-up over Scarborough Shoal between China and the Philippines uh, happened. So Scarborough Shoal is... uh, an island or a group of islands, a small atoll uh, within, clearly within the 200 nautical mile uh, EEZ of the Philippines uh, in the South China Sea. It is not within a 200 nautical mile arc of, of southern China. Uh, the Chinese claim the entire South China Sea. Their fishermen came in and pushed out, forcibly pushed out uh, Filipino fishermen. And that's been the situation ever since. The Chinese uh, Coast Guard and their Navy uh, and their their fishermen exploit resources on Scarborough Shoal right now. And so at, at first, the, the Philippine government at that time pushed back uh, diplomatically very hard, and they filed a, 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 um, a grievance with the International Court, Interna- International Tribunal for UNCLOS. Uh, and, and the Chinese response was very interesting. They had a very strong economic response, which was, we're going to stop buying bananas. So you want to complain about Scarborough Shoal? We will stop buying Filipino bananas, and that squelched uh, the, the the Filipino um, uh, voice 
uh, and complaint pretty pretty well. Um, so if we go to the South China Sea now, so it's six years later, um, and you're a military planner there at Marfor Pak, what are some of the thoughts uh, that you can share with us about ongoing um, U.S. military plans and how how the U.S. is looking at uh, the Chinese buildup in the South China Sea, those atolls, um, and, and what might that you know yield in terms of conflict or how to manage that conflict in the future? So, sir, I can't speak anything to contingency plans because I'm not I'm not working that area. I'm working uh, as a foreign area officer, uh, engagements, phase zero type things, setting up exercises with partners. And it, it, you know, and, and the fact is, if I if I was in those plans, I, I wouldn't be able to to they they probably be classified whatever they were. Um, I know that in the you know just our our unclassified uh, uh, engagements we have with them. It was uh, Admiral Harris briefed Congress I think April of last year, and I cited him several times in this article. Um, he still. He, on the surface, everything looks great, and and with uh, President Trump, it looks like the the damage has been repaired. Uh, you know, he's not Duterte doesn't insult Trump like he insulted uh, President Obama, President Trump like he did President Obama. However, my argument in the, the article is that uh, that's not a good sign. That's a bad sign because it's a it's a sign of pragmatism. If uh, it would be easier to, it'd be easier to gauge if his if he had a consistent response to the U.S. But for him to switch like that, I see pragmatic incentives as being the driving force, and not a threat perception. And some of the some of the authors I looked up on the Philippines, um, this the one author uh, was shoot. I have him cited here. I can't remember him right now, but his argument was that the last several Filipino presidents didn't see, or administrations don't actually see China as a existential threat. They're more on the side of it being a uh, an opportunity. So yes, there's a Scarborough Shoal things, but uh, and and the Enclos decision, and you have that. But all in all, we can't. The economic incentives are too good for their relationship with China, especially a poor country like that. The economic incentives are too good. Um, I, in, in Sri Lanka, I've been heavily involved in Sri Lanka, and I've seen right there just the country slowly slipping deeper and deeper into Chinese pockets because of their – it's ingenious what they do, honestly. They, they basically give high-interest loans to country to rebuild their infrastructure. And it, it's very, especially if you're an elected official trying to get reelected, and you these are tangible things you could show. You could show roads, you could show bridges, you can show things like that. And China dumps money, and it benefits that elected official, but it also benefits China and gets them in a debt spiral. So it's 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 ingenious what China's doing, and I you got to respect them for it. And it's absolutely nonviolent too. So. I've, once again, I went off on a tangent, but uh, with the Philippines, I, I don't think they view China as a threat that we would like them to view China. or They don't view China the way I think we would like them to or the way we assume they do. Yeah, that's a great point. So um, we're getting close to the, the end of the show. Um, so how does this all net out 
um, do you think? Uh, you mentioned that you're feeling safer there at Hickam uh, in recent weeks when that's, that's awesome. Um, but, uh, you know, how does this net out in the next two to five years, do you think? I think, I think we're going to end up having to make some priority calls as a, as a country with our, our partners and allies, um, especially given limited resources of, you know, which ones are there, are there certain partners and allies that are economy of force missions? You know, the, I'm sure you're probably familiar with that term. It's you kind of put the bare minimum in there to keep it going. Uh, and which ones should we, should we reinforce? Which relationships should we reinforce? When you look at, when you look at it, if the, if the pacing threat is China, then we really should revalidate our, our assumptions on the Pacific and who would actually back us. All these security cooperation events are great. They're fantastic. They, they make for good um, relationship building and everything. But if it's all for not when, it's, when we ask our partners and allies to, to back us, then it's a waste. And, you know, is it money that we could be – we have a lot of opportunity costs that we're spending. Those opportunity costs are our own organic forces, our own organic readiness. Um, if our assumptions are wrong and we can't count on these partners and allies when the uh, the ball drops, then that means we can only count on ourselves. And if we've been under-investing in our own force projection capabilities or, or forcible entry capabilities, then – it was all a waste. So I, I'm not, I guess I don't, I don't want to make my own. Um, I, I do have pretty strong personal beliefs about it, but I'd rather just the point of the articles. I wanted discussion to open up. I wanted people to start talking about it. Cause it was, it was almost like Harry Potter. No one wanted to say Voldemort. <laughs> he, he, who, he will, who shall not be named. And this was a topic. It's a, it's one of those Voldemort topics that are out there. And, um, I just learned a new term today called the Overton window. I don't know if you're familiar with it. The Overton window is the it is the window of uh, discourse. And so when the Overton window is wide, it's you can talk about a lot of things and debate a lot of things. When it closes, uh, you can't even bring up certain subjects. And I think the Overton window has been closing rapidly in the last few years, and people are just afraid to say things. And things need to be discussed and need to be said in order to innovate. And if not, we're going to stagnate. Um, there's a little risk in that. I think I've, I've risked it by writing my writings for proceedings. If you go back or they're not uh, shy and they're definitely um, trying to start a little dust up, but my intentions are good. Yeah. Around here, we call the Overton window, the warden window. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, and the open forum. I mean, that's that's another yeah. another term. And we for want what, that wide open. We want, we want it wide open. We, wide open. We want to have a conversation. We yeah. want uh, we want people from all sides to come in and and join the debate. Right, have a discussion. What what is what is China's strategy? What should the U.S. strategy be uh, to counter it? Um, at your point about. Uh, you know, analyzing the motivations and the strength of our alliances uh, in, in the Pacific is spot on and, and a very significant part of that discussion. Well, you mentioned that we had our annual meeting last week, and during the Q&A, 
with our keynote speaker, who was the CNO, uh, somebody asked, what's this that it seems like we're necking down on uh, public discourse or the ability of active duty members to speak, um, you know, out of school? And he was very specific about, look, I'm not talking about any sort of issues beyond what has always been the difference between something that's classified and something that hazards security and the open forum. And he is a very big supporter of the open forum. So if you're a, a f- person out there like Nick who who's, has something that's bugging them um, and you've been thinking about putting pen to paper for the independent forum of the Sea Services, which is also known as Proceedings Magazine, do not hesitate. Um, so, Nick, thanks for uh, joining us today. Thanks for making it make sense in terms of how that region is structured country by country. Fantastic. Thanks for getting up at, uh, at or not getting up. <laughs> Thanks for, for being up at 2.30 in the morning out there. Um, great stuff. Well, thank you for having me, gentlemen. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, I worked hard on this. I'm glad you're you're interested in it. So. Oh, very interested. And uh, it's, it's getting uh, read well online. And uh, we're getting a lot of great feedback. Uh, many people have been uh, sending us uh, emails and, uh, and letters saying that the the May issue is a terrific package. So you've got, you know, we have a piece by Admiral Swift talking about fleet-level command. We have your piece analyzing the alliances in the Pacific. We have uh, three very strong uh, award-winning essays from the General Prize Essay Contest. We have the, the Naval Review, the Marine Corps Review, Coast Guard Review, etc. So I recommend to uh, to everyone uh, not only the article of uh, by Major Nick Nappy called, but will they fight China? But also the rest of the uh, the May issue of proceedings. Uh, Nick, thanks for joining us. Aloha, mahalo, and uh, wishing you all the best out there, and that uh, you survive the next couple months of your uh, your night duty section. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate you having me on, and uh, I'm I'm actually moving. I'm getting stationed at the uh, office of the Chief of Navy Operations. I, I move next month, so headed to the uh, Pentagon. Yeah, yes, sir. Condolences. <laughs> but but on the good side, that means that you are close to Annapolis, close to the Naval Institute. You'll have to come visit us, keep writing Definitely. for us, and you'll be you'll be able to attend a lot of the uh, conferences that we uh, that the Naval Institute hosts uh, either in Washington with organizations like the Museum or CSIS or here in Annapolis with uh, the Naval Institute, uh, the Naval Academy, and uh, and the Wood Foundation. We do a history conference in the fall, uh, and all those things are free and open to the public, and they tend to be really great discussions and conversations. So looking forward to having you join us for, for some of those. Definitely, gentlemen. Thank you very much, gentlemen. All right. Good luck with your PCS. Hurrah. Thanks. Okay. Out here. Well, thanks, everybody, for uh, joining us again for the Proceedings Podcast. And I uh, remind you to uh, uh, read and write for Proceedings. And uh, don't forget, victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute. Mm-hmm.